Hello and welcome to the Delco Skate Park Coalition podcast. The Delco Skate Park Coalition is a nonprofit organization of skate enthusiasts, parents, and disability rights advocates looking to build adaptive and inclusive skate parks in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Aaron Lopez, and we are the podcast that covers all things about skateboarding, skate parks, and not just skate parks, but ADA, accessible, adaptive all wheels, and inclusive skate parks in Delco and beyond. I'm super excited to be here with Carrie Weber today. Carrie is the owner of Switch and Signal Skate Park in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, an inclusive skate space. Carrie, thank you so much for being here today. So the first question I kind of ask everybody who comes on this podcast is where are you from and when did you get your first skateboard? Sure. I'm originally from Washington, Pennsylvania, which is just south of Pittsburgh by about 20 miles. Um, let's see, I didn't really get a skateboard of my own until I was around 10 years old and kind of a story (laughs) where I really wanted a board, but my uh, dad wasn't into it. Um, so I actually, uh... Was your dad like worried like, hey, you're going to get hurt if you go out there and you skateboard or... He was, yeah, yeah, he was. He was worried about my knees, which now, um... 42 years old is now uh, come to fruition pretty bad arthritis in my right knee after skating for over 30 years um yeah so i started skating though when i was about five years old uh it's 1986 bones brigade is in full force Uh, a lot of my neighbors were in their teens so uh the first skateboard that i really fell in love with was a mike mcgill model um now the pals making reproductions we stock it here at the shop however um the first skateboard i was given was a plastic banana board couldn't really ride it this was from the neighbor kids who thought it would be cute to give me you know this tiny little skateboard tried to ride it didn't really work out um those things had like very little stability and you couldn't do a whole lot on terrible wheels no real way to turn Uh, But I ended up getting my own skateboard, which was a Nash Kona, uh, plastic parts all over it from Toys R Us. I may have swiped a bunch of uh, dimes from my dad's dresser. (laughs) Turns out they were all Liberty dimes, which were worth a lot more than the the face value. (laughs) Uh, So we all learned a lesson that day. But yeah, that was, um, yeah, that Nash Kona was my first uh, board of my own. So it's so, you know, it's like, just fast forwarding really quick right now, we're actually in Switch and Signal. You can hear there's a bunch of kids out there skateboarding. You can hear them having a great time. This place is so amazing. The indoor space is beautiful. How do you go from that Nash skateboard to, you know, the next steps? What was your skate terrain like? And, you know, were you able to skate with the neighborhood kids once you got that board? So when I started skateboarding, my driveway was the only flat driveway in the neighborhood. We lived on a hill. Uh, The neighbors across the street and the next door neighbors, they were, um, you know, like I said, they were teenagers. 
my parents very welcoming people even though they didn't want me to skateboard they were happy to host the neighborhood kids to skate on our flat driveway um but yeah washington just like pittsburgh lots of hills um i didn't really get going until i was a little bit older until i was 10 where i was riding on a regular basis and I got that board of my own. By that time, this is about 1991, skateboarding was absolutely dead in those first few years of the 90s, especially Washington. So I actually skated a lot by myself. It wasn't until 1994, 1995, when skateboarding really started to break again. And um, I had, by that time, 92, 93, I had, you know, got myself a nice new Everslick, so it was probably a Santa Cruz board. I, I can't remember exactly the brand, but it was an Everslick, and they were the ones making that at the time. I had Tracker trucks, and uh, yeah, that was, you know, sort of my first symmetrical or, you know, popsicle stick board. Um, and, and skateboarding was getting bigger. You know, the bike shop uh, in Washington, downtown Washington, had, uh, you know, a selection of alien workshop boards that I remember looking at and wanting those, but those were way expensive, couldn't afford those at that time. Um, and I started to get friends that skated. You know, I was known as the skateboarder in my town and, you know, looked down upon. Uh, but when we, you know, started to see skateboarding growing, all of a sudden, I had all these new friends who wanted to skateboard too. Uh, so, you know, I mean, skateboarding goes in waves and it sort of, you know, petered off at some point as friends got older and they got cars, uh, they ditched their boards. I remember when I got my driver's license, this was like, great, now I can go to all of the spots that I've wanted to go. Uh, it used to take me a long time to get into, into the city to go skateboard. Uh, but once I was, you know, 13, 14 years old, I could usually get a ride from someone to the South Hills, Pittsburgh, South Hills. You could get on the T system, the trolley system, get to downtown, um, I'd meet a lot of people on the T coming into Pittsburgh with my skateboard. And then I started making friends in the city. Like if somebody else had their skateboard, you would start to talk? Or? Absolutely. Actually... Yeah. Uh, I made a whole group of friends, um, so I met, I, I met these two girls outside of a pizza shop in Mount Lebanon, which is a town just south of Pittsburgh, and I saw that one of them was wearing some Sal 23s, I think it was like an, uh, an Etnies or an America brand at the time, and I saw those shoes and I was like, okay, skateboarder. Back then, you used to be able to kind of identify people by their shoes, and it was an obscure shoe. Um, so I see, you know, this person say hello. Her name's Christina. We start talking. Then we hang out at the mall. And I start skateboarding with this group of girls, about five girls that, you know, skate. And, you know, again, this is in the early 90s. So a lot of people I talk to, especially the guys, were like, we never saw any female skaters. So it sounds like you had a group of friends that were female skaters. Correct. Yeah, I think that it's it's interesting when I hear a lot of men say that, especially that, oh, it's cool to see women skateboarding now. I think that it's telling. It's telling about who we feel safe around. 
And I think that a lot of times men aren't seeing women skate or see that side of skateboarding because like the queer skateboarding scene, the non, uh, I guess I would say the non-traditional is sort of the term that's being used, but the non-traditional skateboard scene, sometimes protective. You know, when I was growing up skating, I definitely got a lot of shit for it. Um, a lot of um, aggression and a lot of hate from like jocks, right? Um, but skateboarding is so mainstream now that you, even as like a non-traditional skateboarder, you don't necessarily see other skateboarders and feel safe. And so, again, when I hear, you know, men, especially men my age, say, well, oh, this is so cool to see this now. I think it's, well, there's a reason that you didn't see it before. And it's because people didn't feel safe around you to express that or to go skate with you uh, or to just open up around you. Yeah. Um, that's... <laughs> yeah. I think that's really well said, actually. So you, you were able to kind of see, it sounds like, through the friends that you made through skateboarding, that there was this whole other element that a lot of the more traditional skaters weren't seeing. Absolutely. I think that it's been around. There have been, yeah. you know, uh, trans skateboarders. There have been gay skateboarders. There have been women skateboarders. There have been lots of uh, people who just don't fit in within skateboarding this entire time. Um, and a lot of times those people, you know, get pushed off to the side. I definitely felt pushed off to the side when I was young. Um, and, you know, I think that sometimes you identify, uh, with the people who, you know, they maybe have a different narrative and a different story. Um, it's, it's easier to, easier to connect. Yeah. And when you were younger, you, you were making friends on the T and coming into Pittsburgh and finding skate spaces in Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh, by the way, is one of my favorite cities. I love it. Um, it's, it's a city that has a lot of different elements that I think you come here and discover them. Where were you going to skateboard? Yeah. Wow. So getting off at Gateway Center uh, on the T, so right in the, in the thick of it, um, you know, Pittsburgh in the triangle, right? That's what we'll sometimes call it, uh, going to the point. Uh, when you get off at Gateway Center, you're basically going downhill from Grant, uh, from Grant Street. And so there would lot there would be like lots of streets that would have uh, as it goes downhill like sets of steps, uh, curbs that had like a metal almost coping of sort you know next to it like a little curb protector. But one of the spots that I really loved it's not there anymore was the roof of Fort Pitt or the Fort Pitt Museum. That space there's almost no footage of it. Whenever I want to show somebody of it show somebody uh, Fort Pitt I usually there's like a 30 second clip on YouTube you can find but we called it the Green Banks and so the Green Banks on top of for the Fort Pitt Museum was perfect they rebuilt uh, the Fort Pitt Fort Pitt Museum right around the time of the bicentennial uh, so they could take people up there after the bicentennial um, you know the space was still pretty well maintained if you went to uh, the Fort Pitt Museum, sometimes there would be tours that would come up there and you'd see the embankments, right, that people would be hiding behind in the colonial wars. They had these, uh, you know, big wooden pylons. But if you crossed the bridge, so long as you didn't go through the park, or if you did go through the park and maybe one of the park rangers was asleep or just not paying attention, <laughs> you could sneak up there and skate for hours. Tell me about the terrain that, that it was, was like a there. cement that had 
a fiber underneath it. It was like not spongy, but it wasn't super hard. If you fell, it wasn't terrible, but it was so smooth and so well maintained. There weren't any cracks up there, um, but it basically looked like just a, a, it looked like a giant skate park. But the embankments were so nice. You could roll up onto them easily, ollie onto them. You could, you know, get on top of it, ollie down. Um, you could just skate on the flat ground there. Um, but, yeah, just really green and smooth, uh, almost like a geometrical shape. You can still actually, I mean, you can see um, there's still one part of the green banks that exists on the other side of the bridge, of the Fort Pitt Bridge. That's pretty well destroyed by now by weather and, you know, all the rest of it. There's a few little DIY spots. But it sounds like at the time this was just this kind of like ideal space for you guys to go and skate. It was great. Yeah, it was absolutely great. I mean, I, I think that that typifies architecture that is recontextualized through skateboarding. So architecture that, you know, we would go downtown and we would find like two steps, three steps. We would find all kinds of things, uh, you know, that would make sense to us to skate. Uh, and, in, you know, again, this is early 90s, mid 90s did not really attract the same attention as it does now. Was there a community that was happening at that space? I don't think there was a community in that space per se because it was just too hard to get, you know, you'd get chased out in a minute. You know, we used to then start to cross the highway. We would, you know, basically go on the Fort Pitt Bridge, walk down the bridge from the south side, or, uh, you know, we would just climb over and crawl over run through traffic to get there <laughs> if you ever saw any other people skating there that was awesome but you know again it was so short-lived i don't think that you know that really a community space existed there it, it, you know yeah back then i think that skateboarding for us it was in a sense this thing that you did as an outsider it wasn't um something that had a, a central hub there was an indoor skate park called shady skates definitely some cool stuff going on there with a skate team and whatnot um but as far as you know the street skating scene back then i think a lot of kids you know they were either broken homes parents weren't around that much you know my parents weren't around that much when i was a kid and you know, you, you use skateboarding to find other people to hang out with. So absolutely a community, but I don't think that there was like a, a space or a central hub in the same, in the same vein yeah. as there is these days. After you um, kind of as a teenager found this, some of these spaces in Pittsburgh where you could skate and it's kind of the mid 90s. Were there any skateboarders at the time that were kind of like really influential to you and your your style of skateboarding, what you were interested? Hmm. You know, I don't recall there being anybody locally that I really identified with. Um, again, when I was younger, I think skateboarding started for me when I was super young um, with much older kids when I was really discovering it and exploring it, this was so much of a solo activity that back then when I was younger, it just, it didn't really hit in that same way. I think that in the way that we um, might've thought, I mean, if you were, 
I guess, you know, uh, what do they call them? Uh, like an elder millennial, right? <laughs> or if you're Gen X, especially, you know, Gen X, you know, we would associate, um, you know, music culture, right? So you're into a specific kind of music. Uh, if you went to a coffee shop, you know, you know, if you were in this alternative culture, um, you really got to kind of define yourself against institutions. And so I think that there was just a little bit of lack of trust, definitely for myself, of, you know, people that might be associated with a bigger thing, you know, a bigger organization. You know, it's kind of antisocial when I think about it now. <laughs> but back then, I think it just made sense that, you know, you really had this idea that you were forging your own. Um, information culture has changed. So, you know, in, you know, the 90s before Internet is ubiquitous, you know, maybe we find each other hanging out in specific places. But, you know, we don't have all the information of where to find everything at once at moment's notice. Yeah. Um, when you're kind of starting to get into your 20s, you know, it, it, it sounds like skateboarding has been a thread for you throughout your, throughout your yes. life. Yes. Um, how do things start to change later in the 90s? Because, as you said, skateboarding picks up. You know, the X Games starts to come onto the scene. A lot more people are doing it. Um, does your skateboarding change into the late 90s? So, late 90s skateboarding was still part of me part of my life and something that i did on a regular basis you know it was certainly a, a way of public transit you know of oh, public sure. transit i should say rather skateboarding was a way for me to get around um but in the late 90s i think that i was getting more politically active and politically involved um you know in pittsburgh for example uh, there's a case of uh, the murder of Johnny Gambage. Johnny Gambage was the cousin of uh, Ray Seal, I think, uh, Steeler. And he was killed by uh, the Brentwood police just outside of Pittsburgh. And that was a time for me of, you know, sort of political awakening. You know, this was something that happened a couple of years earlier and didn't really get the attention um, until you know, these police officers were not only acquitted, given raises. And so this was something that, you know, I think made sense for me just in the context of skateboarding, because I was, you know, always downtown, always interacting with police. And so hearing about this and, um, you know, hearing about protests, that meant that, you know, I'm going to go and be there. And I'm there on my skateboard, but also I'm, you know, I'm out in these streets that I'm, I've been familiar with for a number of years. And um, just to think about, like, again, this interaction with police and, you know, when you're young and you think about skateboarding, you're thinking about, like, I'm minding my own business. I'm thinking about, you know, a black man who's driving home from his cousin's house, minding his own business, getting pulled over, being beaten, being killed. Um, I think that that political... Um, this political streak in, in my life it felt like it was connected to skateboarding you know skateboarding for me also brought things like punk rock music political music um, things that uh, you know again spoke to this 
sort of like anti-authoritarian streak. Um, and so that kind of all made sense. So I think that maybe I wasn't paying attention as much to, again, skateboard industry. And that was never necessarily a part of it. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it sounds like the experiences you had through skateboarding became the lens through which you saw a lot of things and shaped your understanding. Right. How, how did you stay politically involved? Did you get more politically involved through that experience? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, the first protest uh, that I went to, I think that I saw like this other world and, you know, being again out on my skateboard, I remember actually having interactions with people where they thought that I was just showing up. I was a skateboarder on the street and thought, oh, isn't this great? This like young white kid on their skateboard is coming to join this march. I knew about the march. I was, you know, already planning to be there. Um, but it, it felt like, okay, this is like a place where I want to be. Um, there's something going on here. And so, yeah, I mean, it basically, I dove right into that. This is the time of the anti-globalization movement, right? So this is WTO, the IMF and World Bank um, protests. And these are, you know, protests, again, that I, you know, made sure that I needed to get to, that I needed to be at, um, you know, to make my voice heard. Um, and, yeah, again, always... <laughs> on my skateboard <laughs> which you know i mean that that you know can be dangerous sometimes going to uh going to a big protest where you might get you know pepper sprayed and arrested with a skateboard you know they often see them as weapons oh yeah um, did, you, did you ever get targeted in that way do you i don't think, i don't or? think so okay. i think that i was uh cautious enough um you know my only arrest i didn't have a skateboard on me and actually didn't even end up in an arrest ended up just in uh you know, detainment for several hours, so. Have you been in Pittsburgh, you know, just throughout your life? Did you ever live anywhere else? No. Or, you know, and has your skateboarding always been with you? So, let's see. Um, when I was, I graduated high school, moved right to the city. So, Washington County, pretty small. Um, as soon as I could... I had already had, when I was living in Washington, I already worked at a coffee shop. It was like an all-night coffee shop, the Beehive, which was like very much a central hub for counterculture, alternative culture in the 90s. Um, I worked at a, at a job at a restaurant called Zenith, which was a vegetarian restaurant that uh, still there today. Um, and so I already had these jobs when I was in high school. I was driving into the city. As soon as I graduated, basically the day that I graduated high school, drove in, stayed with friends, got an apartment. Um, you were like, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out of Washington. <laughs> and I lived here for about a year, a little under a year. Um, worked on a bunch of art. I was really interested in going to art school at the time. And so I'm going to go to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And then I met, I met these guys who were on tour with a movie. And uh, they ended up taking me on tour with them uh, effectively for nine months. And it was so you great. you took a total side I, course. Yeah, and... I was supposed to go to school that January. Um, so I was going to enroll in the middle of the year, which was kind of odd anyways. And um, 
but my lease was coming to an end in Pittsburgh. So, okay, great. My lease is going to end in March, but I'm going to leave mid-January. I end up going on this tour that completely changed my life. It was called DIY Fest, which, you know, in 2000, 2001, the concept of DIY, um, you know, there was no, like, DIY channel yet. Um, again, internet is not what it is today. So um, it was still the idea, idea of a DIY fest. We're talking about, like, independent music, independent filmmakers, activists. Um, this is also the time, and, you know, a lot of people don't remember when George W. Bush was the worst president this country had ever seen. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the activists I was, you know, organizing with were getting ready to, like, go down to D.C. to protest the inauguration. <laughs> Funny to think about that particular thing now. It's a different context now. Completely yeah, different yeah. context. Yeah. So you go on this tour. Was it a na were you international, national? Where were you so guys So it was a going? national tour, and it was centered around a movie called Threat. Uh, this movie is directed by uh, now my friend uh, Matt Pozzolo. Matt uh, shot this film on you know the streets of New York City, and I mean they were using like skateboards on soft wheels as like dollies for cameras. This was a movie that was um, you know basically shot a feature length film shot for a hundred thousand dollars, and most of the film they just got as scraps from you know like a, a film kitchen that one of them worked at in New York City. Um, but it was great. I saw all of these like DIY spaces around the country. Um, you know, I went. And these are from, DIY spaces where people are creating like art. People again, are creating, creating music art, or... music, skateboarding. You know, we uh, we showed our film in all kinds of different spaces. Sometimes garage spaces in you know Iowa City. Um, we you know did some. Uh, shows in Park City, Utah during the uh, Sundance Film Festival when there are all these alternative dances, right? Um, you know, we would literally go to Walmarts, buy TVs, and then use their, like, no question to ask return policy to return the stuff <laughs> afterwards to get our shows done. Yeah. Um, you guys are really creative on what you are... And this is no budget, too. Like, I mean, yeah. we don't have anything. You know, we're basically going from town to town to just show our, you know, show the film, show Matt's film. And uh, I was doing music at the time, but it was great because I got to skate. I got to skate Burnside, you know, for the first time in 2001 when we went to Portland. Um, you know, I got to skate around Seattle. I got to go to the West Coast for the first time on this tour. And uh, yeah, after that, I moved into uh, Matt's apartment with his uh, girlfriend, Katie, and lived with them in New York City. Uh, until September 2001, and uh, <laughs> about a week before September 11th, I moved to Chicago to uh, go to art school, and that lasted for uh, that lasted for about a year and a half. Traveled around the country again, uh, working. Do you take your skateboard with you? Absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Skating everywhere. What were some of the skate spaces that you were seeing in? that early 2000s period on you know these these travels that sort of stood out for you did you sort of learn and different concepts about design what worked what didn't work it was interesting to see how people everywhere you know had a similar concept of like what worked and what didn't work 
a lot of these uh, DIY spaces that had like a ramp in them. I mean, these were like mini ramps. Sometimes the coping was attached really well. Sometimes the grain of the wood was shown and worn and it didn't matter a few of the places people took great care you know um but a lot of times these are in squats these are in you know small spaces uh i never got to skate uh the autumn ramp in new york city because you know i just wasn't in with the right crowd um but some of the other the, some of the spaces that i got to skate in um well in portland for example i mean these were just people that were like it rains here a lot I'm gonna put together some ramp and whatever works so um I think it was a different time though in terms of you know the space and availability you know now we look at big warehouse spaces as these commodities where we can do cool and unique things um I think that earlier decades um you know big open spaces were seen as you know sure whatever it's just gonna sit here empty there was a great space in colorado springs where we showed the movie that again um they had some ramps set up there that <laughs> it didn't really make a lot of sense um because of all the other different art projects that were going on in that space but it kind of worked again it was just like fun stuff to do yeah um you know uh, there was a car garage uh in Oakland, California, and again, this is Oakland, like, late 90s, and Oakland late 90s, very different space, you know, I mean, you could get, uh, you know, 10 people living in a giant building, and it was dirt cheap, and so I think that... It's before the, the tech boom happened in the Bay Area. This is, like, after... I think this is after the first bubble burst. Yeah. And... Even in San Francisco, I mean, we, we uh, had a show at this place called Cell Space in Soma, and uh, C-E-L-L, Cell Space. And, you know, Cell Space was sort of, like, funded, like, Perry Farrell had some money invested in this, so just there could be cool art stuff going on. But at the same time, I mean, people just moved out of the Bay in mass, and so there were all these empty storefronts, and rents started to become really cheap again. We'll see if we see, like, a third tech, you know, uh, right. bubble burst. This is Ellen Berryman, and if you would like to support the mission of the Delco Skate Park Coalition, go to www.skatedelco.org. So my travels were, I lived in New York City twice. I lived in Chicago twice. I lived in Portland and I lived in the SF Bay Area. So um, yeah, New York was uh, in initially a pretty short stay. Matt and Katie moved to LA after September 11th because they they can't find work and be their filmmakers. I'm in Chicago for a little bit, travel around the country after that, after a year and a half. And then I just do this whole circuit again <laughs> where I'm back <laughs> in New York, back in Chicago, West Coast, and then come back to Pittsburgh. Effectively, I left Pittsburgh in 2001, in January 2001, and I don't move back to Pittsburgh until um, May, um, May, June of 2017. 
So a good amount of time. Correct. You're, you're not living in Correct. the city. My family's here. Come okay. back on a regular basis. Uh, I build a ramp in my sister's driveway so you know, I could skate with uh, my sister's kids. Oh, fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What what brought you back to Pittsburgh, and did you already have an idea for an inclusive skate space, that, that that was something that you wanted to do when you came back to the city? So Switch and Signal had been at least formulating in a, in a real concrete way for about 10 years prior. So probably about 2007, maybe 2008, I was living in Chicago. I had wanted to do a business for a long time. Um, I worked for Apple for 13 years. A good chunk of that was in retail. The latter portion uh, was in project management and engineering. I didn't, I didn't really know what it would take, but I had these ideas from places that I had seen and um, from some different nonprofits that were going on. Um, the real spark happened when I heard about Skatistan. So uh, Oliver Perkovich, who I've um, you know, been an admirer of his work for a long time, and then all the people that he has worked with um, since, you know, how they were bringing skateboarding to, you know, a war zone, effectively. Where were they doing that work to bring skateboarding yeah. into some spaces that really, really needed something like that. So, yeah, Oliver and his uh, partner at the time, it just started as basically these two Australians from, um, you know, working uh, for an NGO in in the green zone, I believe, in, in Afghanistan, right? And Oliver is a skateboarder. Skateboarders don't necessarily follow the rules and boundaries, so he goes out and he's meeting kids. He's meeting street kids. Uh, the fall of the Taliban in um, you know the early 2000s meant that you had all sorts of uh, different people speaking different languages uh, from different cultural backgrounds throughout uh, Afghanistan and the region coming into Kabul. You know, this is a central city, and their kids are coming with them, and their kids are working and, you know, selling things like gum and pencils on the street to, you know, all the people working at NGOs, and he has a skateboard. He's showing the skateboard off to kids, letting them ride it. Um, so this is happening again. This is happening right in the center of Kabul. There's a great New York Times piece that I think came out in around 2009 or 2010 about what he was doing, where these kids are, like, effectively meeting up in a old Soviet uh, built fountain uh, that looks like a little swimming pool or a little dish and they're learning how to skateboard and uh, it grows into uh, an NGO that at, you know again this is pre the reemergence of the Taliban Th this organization was educating uh, kids uh, in ways that rival um, NGOs that were supported by some of the biggest governments in the world um, they also had uh, more uh, girls per capita than anywhere else in the world skateboarding. You know, they, I mean, That's this was cool. targeted. This was targeted, of course, but they were getting people on skateboards that wouldn't otherwise. And they were yeah. able to do this through kind of a cultural loophole 
that says that girls can't participate in sports, but skateboarding is so abstract from the culture that it isn't necessarily even a Western thing. It is a toy. It's something that anybody can do. You can't fly a kite in Afghanistan if you're a girl over a certain age, but you can skateboard. Given your own experience and, and history, you know, growing up in this area and, you know, being politically active, um, does that start to shape your idea of what you wanted to do with Switch and Signal? Yeah, it does. Um, so the park, again, you know, this is a space that I, you know, it's intentional. Um, a lot of the things that we've done, we've put a lot of thought in how to bring people in to skate. Um, and again, this is, I mean, I, I've been skateboarding with people who don't look like me for a long time. I mean, I, you know, look like a tall white guy um, and dress like a typical skateboarder in, even in my 40s. And uh, I don't know if I dress like skateboarders these days, but, you know, I'm sort of stuck in, you know, we're all stuck in our little time capsules of sorts but you know I, I felt like the purest sense of skating is is that everybody is able to do this thing if everybody has this desire to there's lots of reasons that we don't that we like don't step into um, something that's uncomfortable or something that seems intimidating um, and usually that has to do with how we feel like we might feel judged or we might feel that people are going to make fun of us or you know or we'll take time from other people you know i and i and i feel this you know again i've been skateboarding um you know pretty much my entire life um and i still sometimes feel when i go out and i see somebody who is doing amazing tricks or has like a great style like i don't want to get in their way i don't want to you know i uh, i peaked in my like like mid-20s as far as my skateboarding went i think like 31 when i was 31 years old that was like the best skateboarding i was ever gonna do and you know my arthritis has uh been crippling me ever since so i don't want to get in their way but you know, we can make space and not only make space, but intentionally make space where we say like, you know, we're going to have a night for adult beginners, adult beginner skateboarders. They want to skate, but they don't want to skate in a space where they might feel that they're getting in somebody's way or they just want to relax and not be looking over their shoulder because that's the other thing we might have to like, you know, somebody run into us or make us fall down. This concept that we're just going to like um, have people respect the space—it doesn't—it doesn't really exist. Um, and it's because the perception is the reality. The perception is is that you know I'm just starting out, so I want um, to you know just heed to other people. But at the end of the day, like now you don't have the space to skate, so we're gonna have that. You know, there are a lot of folks that again will want to skate, but. And again, I mean, this is, you know, this is not my experience. My experience is not as, uh, you know, a woman or, you know, somebody who does, you know, is not a cis male. Um, but 
you know, listening and growing up around women, growing up around girls, there is a difference in a space that doesn't need to exist with me in it to influence it in any way. I can step back. I can get out of the space and just let things happen. You know, I don't need to be there to say, hey, let me show you how to do this trick that you didn't even know you wanted to do a few moments ago. What you really want to do is put your feet here and there. It doesn't need to happen like that. I think that, you know, often, like, I, again, lots of people get caught up in, I just want to help. I just want to help somebody learn how to skateboard. You can do that when somebody asks. But if you create a space where it says, like, you, you say, like, you're not going to have the interference of some guy telling you what to do. It's going to happen. And it's going to be amazing. And we have a lot of people, you know, here skating that, again, are not considered traditional skateboarders. You know, we're doing this interview right now in the office of the skate park, and we have our 12 and under session happening right now. Since we've opened 12 and under, it is our evergreen session. It is always on Saturday mornings. It starts at 9 a.m., there are multiple parents that are out on skateboards right now. Multiple mothers, fathers, people that, again, they started skateboarding in their 40s with their children. They started skateboarding because they thought this would be something fun. I'm seeing my kids do this. We have an entire program that started from a woman named Maya Haptis, who, when she was bringing her kid to skateboard, she grew up around skateboarding, but didn't ever really give it a serious try. Well, now she's sitting here while her kid skateboards. She wants to be active. Hey, parents skate free. Give her, you know, helmet, pads, wait, wait, wait. all that. Parents skate free? Parents skate free during Love 12 it. and under. Love it. During 12 and under. <laughs> uh, yeah, during the 12 and under session, if you bring your kid, yeah. skate free. And, you know, I mean, that's two things. I mean, one... You know, nobody wants to sit. Well, sometimes we want to sit and just read a book and, you know, like let the kids go. Totally makes sense. But, you know, we can go out there and we can be active with the kids, right? We can um, have fun with them. I think that that builds a really solid bond and, and it builds skateboarders' um, confidence when they see their parents do it, right? There's like, yeah, there's like an inherent, like, trust. Um, an admiration that children have for their parents and when they see them getting involved in that thing that brings them joy um it is <laughs> you know it's pretty amazing to watch i i totally agree with you i think one of the most amazing things too about seeing kids who skateboard with their parents especially if the kids like my own are better at it you know is that that sense of you're sharing the moment. There's no cell phones, there's no outside noise, like you're in the moment, you're, you're in it together, and it's just, it's such a great thing to have something like that that you can share with your kids. Absolutely. Where Switch and Signal <laughs> is, is located is in a neighborhood in Pittsburgh um, called Swissvale, and can you tell me a little bit about this neighborhood and, and how Switch and Signal sort of fits in to this broader community? Switch and Signal takes its name from Union Switch and Signal. That was a company that made just about everything that fit onto the railroads. Um, Swissvale, in particular, was a company town or a company neighborhood, I guess you could say. There's lots of places like that in Pittsburgh. So just about everybody that lived here in Swissvale worked for Union Switch and Signal, 
had a family member that worked here. So that's our namesake. Um, in terms of, you know, how it fits in, when I was envisioning this place, I envisioned a place that was in a residential neighborhood. Again, this is like, I mean, this is part of bigger mission and kind of idea of um, the yeah, urban development. Talk about that too, that bigger mission that you had and right. what your thoughts were when you were, you know, conceptualizing that. Sure. Well, I mean, just in terms of how it fits into the neighborhood, you know, when we think about like walkable cities, when we think about like livable spaces, places that we want to be at, right, where we live, we can walk to the coffee shop, we can walk to a grocery store, and then what else is there, right? You know, what kind of other recreational activities are there? Building that we're in formerly was a bowling alley. And I didn't necessarily want to move into a neighborhood um, and just take away a resource, right? Funny thing is, Swissvale has another bowling alley. In fact, if you stand at our front door, uh, you can kind of see the front door of the other bowling alley. <laughs> uh, so we've got, we had two bowling alleys here. This building uh, definitely needed a little bit of love. You know, we put a brand new roof on it. But in terms of the concept of putting a skate park into a neighborhood, most times skate parks are in industrial areas. They're in industrial areas because we need a lot of space. And those are hard to get to. There is effectively a certain kind of uh, qualifier that says, I can get to an industrial area. You need to have a car. Yeah. Pittsburgh is not necessarily the best city with public transit, but we do actually have uh, a good bus system. So when I, I would was say looking, yes, yes, Pittsburgh has a really good bus system <laughs> <laughs> compared to other cities I've lived in. Really good bus system yeah. here. Yeah. When I, when I was thinking about this park, it needed to have a few things marked off. It had to be one, not in an industrial area. It needed to be in an area where people actually lived. So I don't want to be in an area where the only people getting there are people that have cars. I want to be in an area where people in the neighborhood can walk there. Swissvale has a population that is younger, right? Um, as cities, as urban growth has uh, made cities less and less affordable, people continue to move on the outer rings of those cities. Swissvale is actually considered its own uh, borough. So it's not in the city of Pittsburgh. It's in Allegheny County, but it's seamless. You, you can't really tell where Pittsburgh ends and Swissvale begins, except for the sign that says, Welcome to Swissvale. So this is a neighborhood that is affordable, that uh, people, again, have raised children here. Um, we are on the busway that connects us to downtown and the rest of the region. Being on a major bus route, again, was absolutely key to this place. Because again, when I think of like, when I think of my vision of like what I want a city to be like or what amenities I want in a city, it needs to be by public transit. It needs to be close to people's homes. It needs to be somewhere uh, that people feel welcome to come into. You know, we turned the building from, you know, what was a very pretty dark and dank looking bowling alley you know the windows were covered up with uh, plywood and um, I don't know why to keep the light out but you know I mean we you know put bright lights in here that are you know sunlight 
uh, they're, they're at the same temperature as sunlight in there, so when you're in here, it doesn't necessarily feel like you're indoors. It feels like that you're in a warm space. It's a really bright space, and it's colorful. I'm looking out there now, and when you, when you conceptualize the design, mm -hmm. what were some of the features that were important to you to make sure that you had? Yeah, so, the, yeah, we haven't really talked about the actual skate park uh, layout yet biggest part about the park is that it didn't have these giant unattainable elements. It doesn't matter if you're the best skateboarder in the world or if you're just beginning. You know, you should be able to skate around just about every surface. If you want to create a space that fosters that growth that starts with somebody who's never stood on a skateboard before or can like rip this place apart um, the elements that we put we put on here look like a plaza style skate park. A plaza style skate park has ramps, like you might see uh, with an accessibility ramp. You might have some steps and some ledges. Um, the center of the park, so we're in um, we're in a space that's twelve thousand square feet. Right in the center of the park, there is a stage, and that stage has a big ramp. It has a quarter pipe on the back wall of that stage area. It has uh, stairs and that ledge. But in the center of that stage, there is a replica of a ledge that was downtown off of Grant Street in uh, the, Mellon, um, the Mellon Building Plaza. And uh, Is this a space that you used to skate? That's a place that I used to skate when I'd get off the T Gateway Center. That's like you know basically right there. Um, the ledges in the park. Otherwise, um, I lived in the Bay Area for a while, so we wanted to recreate something that was similar to the China Banks. China Banks, um, pretty steep. So ours is definitely a toned down version. <clears throat> um, person I built the skate park with, uh, Brent Cromuller, you know, he's built a lot of uh, replicas of the China Banks, and every time somebody says, I want them exactly like the China Banks, they are so not psyched once they get what they asked for, because again, the China Banks are not easy to skate. Um, we recreated um, from the Embarcadero Pier 7, which is, you know, right by the ferry building, um, you know, my girlfriend at the time, she worked on the Embarcadero, so I got to skate there. You know, I'd pick her up from work and get to skate a little bit. Um, what were some of the elements of Embarcadero that you tried to bring here to Switch and Signal? So I didn't get to skate, like, original EMB, um, like, uh, like Gons Gap or anything like that. That was gone by the time I got to the Bay Area. But, uh, you know, the ferry building and then along the Embarcadero... You know, there's, again, there's, like, lots of little curbs. There's lots of elements that, again, you can see some of the best skateboarders in the world um, hitting, but they're all accessible. I mean, for anybody that can ollie up something, you can, you know, get on Pier 7 pretty easily and drop off. Um, little curbs that, you know, you can stall on, you can slide on, whatever it is you want to do. If you just want to cruise around, it's 
kind of fun. I mean, there's like all these little like glass uh, blocks that are in the cement. I think some of them used to light up. <laughs> uh, a lot of them have been pretty destroyed. <laughs> yep. um, but, you know, I mean, there's also a lot of architecture that is prohibited from skateboarding that's made the Embarcadero not as fun. And yeah. that's changed over the years. I think during COVID, especially a lot of that uh, anti-skateboarding uh, elements of the architecture was either, you know, vandalized, taken out, or just, you know, it hasn't made its way back. So... So you create this beautiful, and I'm looking out at it, it's just, it's a really lovely space to skate. I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the programming because it, you know, <clears throat> is a an inclusive skate space. Our, our 12 and under is really our, our, our gateway for a lot of different programming. So we have our kids coming in to skate, um, kids of, you know, different genders coming in. It's you know, not just typical skateboarders that you think of. We have a lot of parents that come in from that. And when the parents are coming in, you know, again, we have moms that have come in. That's how our Shred Your Fears program started. Shred Your Fears is, again, run by a woman named Maya Haptis. It started because she came to 12 and Under. She wanted to learn how to skate and get more involved in skateboarding. She did a lesson with me with a few friends, and after that started coming on a regular basis. And then after about a year or so, she had this concept that she brought to me, and we helped her facilitate that. And she's done that all over uh, the country, in fact, but mostly, you know, we do it here uh, once a month. Um, also, first, uh, one of our first sessions when we started the park was our uh, women in trans session. So this is trans-inclusive, it's trans-masculine, trans-feminine non-binary you know basically and i know a lot of people have issues with this but you know it's it's exclusionary to cis men and that's fine you know we have the openness to skate in this space just about any other time but you know what but once a week and that one time a week is you know again this is an open time for people that might not feel comfortable otherwise and that session again that session is uh one that has consistently been popular. And yeah, also I was going to ask you, has it been growing? It has. It has been growing. It's consistently been popular by people that do not come and skate any other time. They don't want to. A lot of the people that are coming and skating for that, they come for that community, but they also come because there's like a comfort level there. And, um, you know, there's a trust. And, you know, that's something again that's pretty sacred to us but um that's again this is a community that again is in this non-traditional skateboard space that is often unseen but it's often unseen because it's protecting yeah it's protecting itself um it is becoming more visible now which is amazing and i think that that again uh, is why, you know, we sometimes have a little bit of backlash over that. People are people who are skating in these sessions, going out there, talking about it. Yeah. Sharing it. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And, um, you know, we did uh, our, we did a pride roll during Pride Month. Um, That's brought a cool. a lot of folks out, you know. <clears throat> yeah. We, you know, took the streets over parade style through Here Squirrel Hill. Oh, uh, through Squirrel Hill. Through Squirrel Hill. Swissvale, you know, we would love to do. There wasn't like an outdoor space here that I think made sense for a route. So we have a mobile skate park as well. 
So we have an entire uh, 10 piece setup that we bring around in a van. So we set up our mobile skate park at the end of our route. And uh, we started one, st uh, one part of Squirrel Hill at uh, Shady and Forbes. And we just, you know, took the street. I think that there were about 30, 40 people. So first time we've done that. Um, and, you know, brought out a speaker that we could carry with us and just rolled through. It was, it was really great. We had people who were not only on skateboards, people that were also on roller skates, on inline skates. So all wheels. Absolutely. All wheels were welcome. Yeah. Um, same thing in the park. I mean, we are, you know, welcoming to folks on skateboards on roller skates on inline skates we don't do scooters we don't do bikes there is a great place in pittsburgh already called the wheel mill and they have i think one of the best uh bike parks indoor bike parks uh, in the country um certainly this side of the mississippi i mean they have one of the biggest so it's it's a really great space yeah that um, makes sense yeah yeah are you like growing your programming here are you growing your programming in the community so yeah, we so we built a mobile skate park so we could pop up, we could do outdoor events, um, and then also you know we hold uh, camps now with the Jewish Community Center, uh, so we'll do a few weeks there. Uh, but in the park, we're also doing an event with um, the Blind Outdoor Leisure Development uh, Group in Pittsburgh, and so we're going to be working with folks again who. Uh, they want to learn how to skateboard. These are people who uh, are vision impaired or blind who, you know, regularly are going out and doing things like skiing in the winter or kayaking. And so so we're going to be working with them uh, exclusively coming in April. Uh, we worked with a few folks um, who are in chairs. And so starting some uh, preliminary programming around that. I mean, nobody that works here is in a chair and I think that you know we're working with some folks that are just starting out right and we're sort of uh, leaning on them to tell us like what works and what doesn't work yeah have you had a chance to um, meet with any of the stakeholders from the adaptive skate community or is that a, an area that's kind of growing here in Pittsburgh I think that that's growing here I think that the initial interest has uh, has just started to to crop up and like you know you know, kind of show a show um show itself here um but yeah that's definitely you know kind of next phase stuff that you know we're gonna work on this year that. has this you know kind of evolved into something that you're like wow i i'm so stoked about this and i'm so happy with you know kind of this space and the work that's coming out of it. Yeah. The growth that I've seen in Pittsburgh's skate community is is, is going to be felt for a long time. I mean, even if we close down today, I think how many young skateboarders have been influenced from coming here. You know, we have a few kids who have been skating since we opened up, and they've grown. They've grown with the park. Um, what year did you guys open? We opened in 2018. February okay. 9th, 2018 was our official grand opening. Um, but we have a few kids. There's a young man named Messiah Lane. We just started sponsoring him. He just turned 13. He came here on his birthday uh, in 2018. 
and February 17th. And it was a program that we did where we were handing out free skateboards and it was a whole day of lessons and uh, local pizza shops, Spack Brothers, they donated a bunch of pizza to us. Uh, and yeah, Messiah and several of the other kids from that group are still skateboarding here. Um, the parents that have started skateboarding here, Maya and her programming, you know, there is a, again, there's a uh, group called Three Rivers Reform. This is like a queer skateboarding uh, community. You know, we've had several of the people involved with Three Rivers Reform go to Seattle uh, to Wheels of Fortune, which is like the premier, like, uh, you know, non-traditional skate competition. Um, and a few of the people uh, that are from Three Rivers Reform have won in place there. Uh, Hannah Goodman, who's working with us, who has worked at the park, is working with us uh, with Bold, a blind outdoor leisure development group. And, you know, Hannah placed at this contest. It's great. I mean, again, we're building a community that, you know, you might see commonplace in Seattle, in Portland, in the Bay Area. Um, it is growing here. You know, we're growing a community of people that would not normally get the opportunity to skate in Pittsburgh or Pennsylvania. Um, you know, I left this part of the country for a while because it was hard to find work. It's hard to do things that I wanted to. I think I needed to like go out there in the world and experience different things. You know, there is this phrase that we used to say again during the anti-globalization movement that another world is possible. And another world is possible, you know, where that ferments for me is, you know, we can see what we want and we can do those things, right? We can see that we want like a skate community that is more inclusive and we can create those spaces. That's what I think we're doing here. You know, I want there to be a place where people can come and skateboard and not have all of the negative baggage that comes along with skateboarding often. And it's negative baggage that not everybody sees. It's important. I think it's important to stop and listen um, I think it's important to sometimes step back and allow people to experience skateboarding how they want it. And I think that we've done a good job at that. I think we've also done a good job at setting an example. I think that um, out of the people that work here, <clears throat> um, We've set, I think, a good example of what like a positive, positive masculinity can be for children. Uh, that you know, it's okay to skate around and feel your feelings and express how you feel. It's not okay to put people down to make people feel aligned. It's not okay to um, you know make people feel unwelcome. I think that that's an important part of what we've done here um and i think that that's gonna i mean it's gonna continue to grow and it's continue to have positive influence on skateboarding in pittsburgh it's gonna continue to have a positive experience in the region pre-pandemic i think that we were on a really good path covid shut us down for nine months and we've been able to weather that 
hasn't always been popular with our policies of requiring masks. You know, that's reduced as it's become safer. As vaccines became more widely available, you know, we changed our policies and we changed them slowly. And I think that, you know, we kept some people safe. Which is a funny thing to say in skateboarding, keeping people safe as we take risks. But, you know, we've kept this place alive and vibrant, and we're on a really good path to continue that. I absolutely love everything that you just said about Switch and Signal, and I'm so bummed that I live five hours away. <laughs> I wish I lived closer. There's so much important and good work happening here. Why do you think it's important and and this may be self-explanatory but like you know why do you think it's important for communities like pittsburgh and other communities out there to be open to having skate spaces like switch and signal to be open to investing in the type of skate spaces that build this type of community yeah so skateboarding is something that isn't sport it's not exactly art it's athletic, but it's creative. Those are qualities that you don't find everywhere. You, know, you don't find them combined. I mean, dance, dancing, ballet, uh, modern dance, whatever dance you want to say, is athletic and creative. Skateboarding has this cool factor. It's always cool. Skateboarding has been cool since the first time any of us saw it. Like, it's amazing. And, you know, we need to spread that. We need to have that kind of outlet. We have people that come here and skate who have PhDs. Incredibly smart people. Two local, like, uh, politicians that even skateboard here. Right? That's great. Um, you know, however you feel about politicians. But they're great well, and, and, and they're we, important to the process, right? They I mean, are. They're like some of the most important people that can come and skateboard because when you think about a municipality, they're the ones that can have some influence. They absolutely can. Um, and I think that we need to foster these spaces that are open and public. I mean, this is a park that, again, yes, you do pay to come in here and skate. We offer a lot of free programming as well. We offer a lot of options for people who uh, cannot afford it to skate so we do that work but i think that the bigger goal and you know our goal and my you know my goal in this area is to continue to foster more outdoor space more skate space um you know we're doing fine with the amount of people that you know come into this building but we want skateboarding to happen everywhere and so if there is you know a push for that that space to happen if it's not an intimidating skate space that has a, you know, 20 foot circumference full pipe that only, you know, one or 2% of the skateboard population can even utilize, but it costs a million dollars. We're not really doing anybody any justice or good. You know, we need to create open spaces that even if it isn't meant to skateboard, you know, is welcoming to all people. Skateboarding, when I grew up, happened in the streets. It happened by recontextualizing architecture. It happened by recontextualizing the world that we live in. 
Um, it didn't happen because somebody like had a great idea to put a skate park where an unused tennis court was. <laughs> That's so well said. We were skating in unused tennis yeah. courts that nets had been left and the ground was cracking and we'd patch the you know ground ourselves. But we found these spaces and I think that there has been 30 years to develop those ideas. It's been longer than that, but there has been, you know, um, 30 years to really foment this, um, th this possibility that is open, active space that skateboarding can happen in. Some of the most popular places to skate around the world, right? And we think about, like, Philadelphia, Love Park, right? Um, that was not intended to be a skate park by any means. Skateboarding happened there because of the kind of space it was. Um, you know, we can go to D.C., we can go to San Francisco, places you can find in New York City, Chicago... Um, and those places all draw skateboarders from around the world for a reason. So I think that we need to have real thought in why those places are popular. You know, when I think about why we designed the park the way that we did, there's a reason that people will come and pay to skate a ledge here. And they'll skate that ledge their entire visit to the park. And it's not just because skateboarders sometimes have a little bit of, I don't want to call it OCD, but there's a reason that we have this compulsion to try again and again and again to try to get something perfect. I've got to do it, you know, three times in a row or it doesn't even count. My toe dragged on that one. That doesn't work. You know, this, um, you know, this trying to, like, attain perfection <laughs> sometimes can be debilitating, but at the same rate, you know, it does show um, kind of a character and a quality that I think is, is positive in society. And so we think we need to have more spaces like that everywhere. That, Carrie, that is so well said. I am so excited about this interview and the work that's happening here at Switch and Signal. And as I said, I'm really bummed I live five <laughs> hours away because this is such a great space. I want to thank you so much for being a part of this podcast today and, and for, you know, letting me come and interview you here at Switch and Signal, where it's just such an amazing space. Thank you so much, Gary. Thanks, Sarah. Hey, this is Cindy Whitehead. And if you'd like to support the mission of the Delco Skate Park Coalition, please go to www skatedelco.org.